Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. To me, it's really nice to see and hear all of you. It's, it's wonderful to be in a gathering this large of sexaholics from all around the world. And uh, nice to be amongst such longevity of sobriety and at the same time people who are early stage of the program because it's always wonderful reminder for me, uh, you know, that I'm not that far from my first meeting. Anyhow, um, <clears throat> let me start off by telling you that I don't know very much. I used to think I knew everything, but now I know I, I really don't know much. And I certainly don't know as much as I think I do. Now, I tell you that to let you know that anything smart or wise, I might say, came from others in the program, not my original idea. Um, Matter of fact, I'm so unoriginal that I even contemplated telling you somebody else's story instead of mine. But I will tell you what it was like for me. I, uh, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. Now, you know, maybe you think that your own family was crazy and difficult too, but I would trade any of you absolutely sight unseen and get the better deal because my family won Olympic gold medals in dysfunctionality. My family tree had, uh, had root rot and fungus. I, um, it was like growing up in a psychotic amusement park. So to put it mildly, I didn't feel safe or cared for or loved. You know, I felt like no one would take care of me, that I was on my own. And my experience was that I was the only one I could count on. You know, like it says in our book about the problem, many of us felt inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. That was tattooed on my young brain. But I I wasn't willing to let anybody know that I had feelings like that. That that set of feelings were the secret that I had to hide. I felt scared and powerless. So I escaped into fantasy, which as I got older, became sexual ones, eventually fueled by pornography and masturbation. I spent a lot of energy overcompensating from my secret feelings. I treated women as objects. I'd been objectified as a kid. So objectifying others was very easy. Sadly, it was natural for me. And, you know, when I started dating, I always had multiple girlfriends. So I thought that was manly and cool. I had no idea that it was really because I hadn't any clue at all about how to have a real relationship. And I wasn't willing to admit that to anyone, most of all to myself. 
Um, I, I went to high school and college in the 1960s, was a swirl of alcohol and drugs. And, you know, it was the era of free love and lots of unattached sex, which suited me just fine because it was all I knew how to do. And I got married right out of college. <clears throat> I had been obsessed with her because she was unattainable, a major conquest for me. But after we got married, I cheated on her every time somebody else caught my fancy or it was a challenge for me. But <laughs> when I found out my wife was cheating too, I played the injured party and ended it. I, I understood so little at that age. I, I was like an emotional fetus. Uh, I went back to multiple overlapping girlfriends and lots of uncommitted sex. <clears throat> and some years later, I, uh, I met a, uh, the, woman, the next woman I eventually married. Eventually, after 17 years of living together, so you think I might have had a commitment problem? Um, of course, I cheated on her too. I got so... I got so into cheating that I even cheated on the women I was cheating on her with. But I didn't see anything wrong with my behavior. I had the, I had the morals and brain of a reptile. And I was leading a double life and I was getting away with it. So what could be wrong? You know, I had what they call in, in AA, an excess of success. I know this term because my eventual wife was in AA all the time that we were together. And I was oh so supportive of her. But I wasn't willing to even contemplate that I was addicted to. As we know, this is a cunning disease. And then, then she died after many years of battling cancer. And I, I was there for her all those years, all those cancer years, as a primary caregiver. But I was still cheating, too. All my life, I had a program of rigorous dishonesty. Eventually, I began dating another woman and living with another woman who I had had an affair with while we were both in our previous marriages. And no surprise, I cheated on her too. So she, but she caught me and she made me promise not to have affairs anymore. And I did. I actually stopped having affairs. But my disease had progressed so far that my addict lizard brain told me that it would be all right to have anonymous sex with prostitutes and massage girls. I was going to a men's group at the time, but I wasn't willing to tell them the truth and they couldn't help me. You know, it was like showing up at a gunfight with a knife. And none of the six therapists I'd seen could help me either because I wasn't willing to think that maybe I was powerless or that my life was unmanageable. And then I got caught again. And I broke her heart. And to try to save the relationship, that night, 
I went to my first SA meeting, December 23rd, 2008. <laughs> and I looked around and I thought to myself, I'm in a meeting of Sexaholics Anonymous. What has my life come to? How completely pathetic is this? But I wasn't a sexaholic yet. If you'd asked me four hours before I walked into that meeting, if I was a sexaholic, I would have said, what are you out of your fucking mind? I, I wasn't a sexaholic yet. I eventually caught sexaholism in SA meetings. It's a disease that enters through your ears. And if you're lucky enough, you get a very bad case of it, and then you, start, you start to infect others. So I, I gave myself to the program. I was finally willing because I had no choice. I was, I was on my knees. I was face-to-face -face with my disease. And here I was hurting yet another person I loved because I was an addict. <clears throat> Yeah, I'd like to have a different brain. And if you know how to trade it in, please let me know, because I'm, I'm stuck with this addict lizard brain. It's really sometimes just a brainstem. It's reactive. It's like, it's like there's no frontal cortex involved at all. And it thinks crazy thoughts sometimes. But the program, a program has helped me to not necessarily believe what my lizard brain says to me. That's my progressive victory over lust. It's not a straight line. There are easier days and ones that are harder <clears throat> because I'm an addict and I, I always will be. But I have a program and the reason I chose the topic is because to me this program is about willingness. It means be willing to do whatever it takes. It's about being willing to experience my own discomfort and to not try to make it go away by doing something stupid. It's to understand that I'm not going to die from this feeling, even though it may feel that way. I won't blow up, I won't fly off the planet and that this bad feeling won't last forever, whatever it is. It will end at some point, and the feeling will change if I ride it out and accept it. I don't have to act out to make the feeling go away. It's about being, uh, about being willing to do the things I don't want to do. <clears throat> you know, when I was acting on my addiction, I only did what I wanted to do, when and how I wanted you know, I certainly, certainly didn't want to go to meetings to be inconvenienced, to, to follow somebody else's rules, to admit to rooms full of people that I'm scared and angry and resentful and, and self-involved and lazy. It's, a, it's about, also it's about being willing, <laughs> willing to do the things that were beneath me. Somebody said that early on in the program to me that the program didn't start working for them until they were willing to do the things that they thought were beneath them. True for me. I, 
you know, what was beneath me? Following the rules, reaching out to people, praying, admitting my needs and wants. You know, that was all uh, initially stuff that I had an attitude about. Um, and it's about being willing not to be in control. Control was so important to me. It's how I hid all my painful feelings. And now I had to be vulnerable and open and, and trusting and exposed. And I, you know, and I have to be willing to work at the program. You know, it's like we say at the end of our meetings, it works if you work it. Because, you know, just going and sitting in meetings doesn't mean I'm in recovery. Any more than sitting in a garage makes me into a car. I got a sponsor, happens to be listening in today, checking up on me. He's a great sponsor, which really only means that he was the right one for me. And I became willing to do what he told me. You know, I did what we do. I made calls. I didn't like doing that. I checked out my thoughts and feelings with my sponsor, with other addicts. They kept me from... (laughs) They kept me from saying and doing things that I thought were great ideas. You know, they actually helped me see they were really stupid ideas, mostly. And I learned to make sure that my brain was engaged before I let the clutch out on my mouth. I, um, you know, a really important thing to me was that I learned that my feelings aren't facts. That was a stunner to me. I thought that if I felt you were disrespecting me, that that's what you were doing. It was a revelation to me that that was only because how it felt to me. You know, like it says in our literature, if we're disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with us. Uh, You know, and while I worked on my sobriety, I had to be willing to look at my emotional sobriety, to work on the causes, not just the symptoms of lusting and wanting to act out. I had to learn to dig down deeper. And the program really was wonderful for me in that way. Because to me, part of the program is a little bit like a gym or a health club in the, in the terms of that it's a place where I can develop my underdeveloped emotional and behavioral muscles. The muscles I never learned how to develop. Learned, I, I never taught any of this stuff when I was a kid. I had no emotional education. It's also a little bit like a rehearsal hall. It's a place where I practice. I can practice those muscles, telling the truth, feeling safe, feeling less self-involved. And... Um, and I, and I learned to recognize when my, was my lizard brain wanting to take over, you know, when I really wasn't thinking or acting like a mammal at all. And I slowly learned to be in, the, in a real relationship. That was really huge for me because <laughs> my old idea of a relationship, my old idea of a relationship was getting you to admit that you were wrong. Relationship meant my talking until your eyes roll back in your head and 
as you fell over backwards on the way down, you would say, yes, you're right. Anyway, I, I had no idea about how to be in a real relationship until I started to work the program. I thought I had to, <clears throat> I thought I had to manipulate and con and lie to get someone to love me. And now through the program, I, I believe I'm worthy of love. And I, and I came to understand that part of my disease is that I have an intimacy disorder. I just didn't know how to do it. I was incapable before. So as I'm moving along, what, I'll tell you what I do to try to prevent a relapse, <clears throat> maybe something useful. Um, the first thing I do is I, first thing I do is I try to remember that when Jonah finally escaped from the whale, he didn't go back for his hat. And, you know, that, that would be that's helpful for me, a simple thing like that. And what else? I guess fear works for a while. The consequences, you know, then probably taking chips and not wanting to lose what was so hard to gain. But in the long run, I think it is for me, it's, it's um, having the reward of, of actually acting like a grown-up, like a healthy adult. You know, and of course, talking to others and shining a light on my feelings rather than keeping them bottled up and you know, avoiding secrecy and having a private inner life. It all goes back to, you know, the early feeling of no one being there for me but me. I need to remind myself that that's not true. And, um, and, I, and I have to be willing to let good enough be good enough. I have to remember that my fantasy of the perfect partner, the perfect lover, the perfect relationship, the perfect job, the perfect life, it's just that. It's a fantasy. You know, for, I'm an addict. The grass is always greener to me. You know, because I'm an addict. I want it all, and I want it right now. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a no joke about this. There's a, a grandmother who is walking by the beach with her grandson, and they're all decked out in their Sunday best. And all of a sudden, a wave comes into shore, and it washes the little boy out to sea. And the grandmother is stunned. She's incensed. She looks up to the heavens, and she says, God, how could you do such a terrible thing to take this young, innocent life that never tasted the joys and had done nothing in his life? What a terrible, terrible God you must be. And all of a sudden, a wave came back and deposited the little boy unharmed on the edge of the sand. And the grandmother looks down at the little boy. She looks back up to the heavens, and she said, he had a hat. And, you know, that was me. I, you know, I, I have to let good enough be good enough if I'm going to stay sober. And, um, you know, I have to be less self-obsessed. I have to allow a whole other person to be in the room with me, not just the version of them that I want them to be. And I, and I, 
my wife would tell you this one. <laughs> I need to remember that I don't actually know what other people are thinking, no matter what I believe. I'm really not a mind reader. Matter of fact, sometimes I, you know, I'm barely a mind user. So, and I have to remember that the question is my friend. I don't have to know what other people are thinking or what they want or need. I, I you know, I can simply ask. And, um, you know, I guess I think the last willing, thank you, almost finished. Um, the last willing would probably win about spiritual life when I, I had some initial struggle with step three because I wasn't religious. And uh, until my sponsor asked me if I was willing to consider the possibility that there was something greater than me. And since, uh, you know, I have to acknowledge that I, I pretty much made a mess of things up to that point. You know, that was just the smack in the head I needed. And I stopped struggling. You know, and I need to remember that my power, higher power works for me, even if I'm not religious in a conventional way. You know, when I, um, <clears throat> when I first started working the program, I had a lot of guilt and shame. But somebody along the way taught me that guilt and shame want absolution. And there's no such thing. I can never be absolved. What I did is what I did. It will never go away as much as I want it to. I want to have not hurt my wife, I, all my wives, all the other women I used to. I want to have not hurt anybody. But instead of guilt and shame, I can have regret for what I did. Because even though I can't be absolved, I can learn, I can regret, and that can be a motivator, can be a reminder to me not to go back for my hat. So when my lizard brain has a really good idea for me, I call someone in the program and I tell them about my great idea and I listen to what they tell me because like what I said when I started, I don't know as much as I think I do. I need help and I get it from you. Thank you. Thank you for letting me share. Hello. Go ahead. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for this meeting. Thanks to the friend that had sent me the link. Uh, Jonathan, thank you very much. You gave me a lot of power. Um, I, I'm, I understood from your things, from your message, another level in my sobriety and, and some of my problems that I'm dealing day by day. Uh, I can share that um, a lot of the things that you spoke about them, I found a solution in uh, ACA friendship. I go to both uh, groups, SA and ACA, and, and that gave me help how to deal with my dysfunctional uh, effect 30 uh, of seconds. my of thank you of my family that that had a very severe impact on my ability to uh, be recover uh, as an SA member too 
And I'm thankful to, to be here and, and to have the chance to hear this message from Israel. And thank you all that you are with me in the journey forward. Thank you, Amir. Thank you. Okay, go ahead and feel free to raise your that little yellow virtual hand and I'll call on you in order. And since I don't have a hand up, if someone wants to just chime in, go ahead. Hi, my name's Lee, and I'm a real sexaholic. Uh, and I, uh, I related to uh, just a catastrophic uh, series of events that occurred early in my life to when I finally became crashed and burned and became willing to do whatever it took. Um, what I heard you say, and I agree with, is there is that uh, consequences such as embarrassment, uh, discovery, uh, fear, uh, all of those things are really not sufficient for long-term uh, commitment to me. You said you wanted to be a healthy functioning adult uh, and striving to have that was the motivator. And I agree with that 100%. And I've got all, a lot of thoughts on that, but I wondered, and the question I have is uh, what does seconds. being a help, what does that happen to be for you? Is what is, what does it mean to you to be a, a functioning, healthy adult that's responsible? So uh, that's all. Thank you very much. I um, I think, well, for me, for me, it's, it was the understanding initially that um, um, sexual sobriety in the program was the just simply the price of admission for the real goodies. The real goodies here are learning to have the life that you want, learning to be a healthy, functioning adult. Um, you know, and, and you can't get to, it's the emotional sobriety that's the payoff of this program. You know, sexual sobriety is the price of admission, um, the freedom, and I, I did, the way I experience it, Lee, is, is in my relationships. Am I having whole, healthy relationships? Am I thinking about the other person, not just about myself? Mm -hmm. um, and what are my intentions? Uh, am I am I uh, am I am I free from thoughts that I'm um, unwilling to share with anybody? Also, all the sort of things that were the do I no longer have a secret life emotionally, not in terms of my acting out. Am I do I do I feel comfortable sharing what's going on with the people that I have relationships with? Like that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lee and Jonathan. Next up is Nancy. Hi, my name's Nancy. Did I hit? Yes, I did hit unmute. I'm Nancy Sexaholic. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I really, really like all of your little expressions. Um, it just helps me remember things. Um, I loved when you said, and I don't know if I have it right, 
I got to make sure my mind is engaged before I let up on the clutch of my mouth. Yeah, yeah. I make sure I like my that. mind is engaged before I take before I take my foot off the clutch of my mouth. Okay, okay, thank you. And uh, <laughs> you just gave one now that sobriety is the price of admission into the. Mm-hmm. Okay, can you say that one again? Yeah, sobriety is the price of admission in this program so that you can get to the real reward, which is emotional sobriety. Yeah, you said the payoff is, okay. Mm. Um, What I would like to know, if you could think of any of your favorite little expressions. I mean, I absolutely love these kinds of things. So that's what I would ask. Thank you. I I think I probably said all of them when I was talking. I'd actually, um, you know, if anybody has a goodie they want to add to my collection, I'd be happy to hear it. Um, I think that, you know, things that people, I think the, the one that made a big impression on me earlier on, as I mentioned, was that somebody who shared in, in a meeting and said that the program didn't start to work for them till they were willing to do the things that they thought were beneath them. That made a big impression on me. You know, I, I struggle with my ego. I'm outside past tense. I continue to. So, thank you. Thanks, Nancy. And Scott H., you're up next. Uh, Scott Sexhall from D.C. Um, thanks, Jonathan, for, uh, for, the, for, your, for your share. I really, I really appreciate it. Um, you said something in the beginning, and I, I hope I have it right, but I... Uh, I think I, I got what you're saying that that when before you walked in, even after you still you still hadn't contracted sexaholism yet because it hadn't oh yes like hadn't like gone in to your to your head. But you said you you got it through your ears, and if you were lucky enough, you can pass it on to others. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. I just I, I appreciate I just appreciate that uh, expression because in my experience that it's my resistance. It's my resistance to acceptance. That's the that's that's the block, and mm-hmm. uh, I just appreciate your uh, expression of the willingness. Um, so, I, I guess is is there anything besides just "oh crap, I'm going to die" that helps you get to that? Because at the seconds. end of the day, that is it. But just wondering if there's other things that helped you along that path. Well. Hmm. Yeah, I think I, I think I, I, um, I said earlier on that the, um, you know, the things that worked initially were the things that were more fear-based, and um, you know that's a powerful motivator. You know, <clears throat> at a certain, at an early point, it was a powerful motivator. But going along, like I, you know, when I was saying when I talked with Lee, that it it became the the liking the rewards so much experiencing the change in relationships experiencing the change in myself experiencing the you know the bandwidth that's available to my brain when i'm not obsessed with crazy thinking you know when i'm not spending a lot of time planning illicit things in my head you know when i'm when i don't longer have that crazy addict narrative going on all the time. 
You know, like I said, I have the brain of a reptile. You know, when I'm thinking like an addict, it's my reptile brain. I'm not even a mammal. I'm a lower life form when I'm thinking like an addict. Thanks, Scott. And I don't have any yellow virtual hands up yet. So uh, go ahead and chime in if you have a question or just simply wish to share something. Hi, I'm Susie. I'm a sexaholic. <clears throat> My name is Gary, um, and I'm a sexaholic. Oh, let's and go one with of the things. It, in answer to Scott's question, is wait. that um, I realized through working the steps, especially the fourth step and the eighth step and the ninth step, that I'd hurt people very deeply, and I wanted to stop hurting people so deeply. And they were u- usually the people I loved the most. Or the people that love me the most, those are the ones that I hurt. And and there's tremendous motivation that comes from realizing how much I've hurt people in deep, deep ways. It's not like, you know, I took their piece of pie from the cafeteria line. No, I, I hurt them right where they live and in, in, in very deeply. So that's it for me. Thank you. I just want to add that probably that knucklehead who just spoke had a huge effect on me in this program. He was like the first person I met at the first meeting I went to. He's still checking up on me. (laughs) Thanks, Gary, Jonathan. Susie, I think you were trying to chime in there. Hi, I'm Susie, sexaholic. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate your sharing today. And one of the things I'd like to hear a little more about is um, you said it's okay to regret the past as long as we're not living in the shame or something to that effect. And I know the AA Big Book uses the expression that we don't re- we don't regret the past and we don't shut the door on it. Um, and I remember a friend of mine. Um, sharing about his difficult relationship with his son. And he had told his son that he didn't regret anything. And he was saying that because of that phrase in the big book. And I thought at the time, that's, that's, does, that's a misinterpretation or misapplication or something. I certainly regret a lot of things I did in my past, in my disease. And, um, I understand not wanting to shut the door on. I need to remember them so I don't go back there. And I need to remember them so I can share them with newcomers. But um, would you talk a little more? Would you talk a little more about the difference between regretting the past and not living in the shame or, you know, how to, how to make, uh, what to do with the regret, I guess is, is uh, my question. And and before I leave, I'll, I want to say how much I appreciate um, what you said about, I think you said about the fellowship being the rehearsal hall where I can learn some basic skills and interpersonal stuff and develop, learn how to tell the truth. I really like that. That was good for me to hear. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah, so for me, it's the difference between, I was for a little while and I watched other people coming into the program and this, 
regret, guilt and shame is paralyzing. Guilt and shame doesn't do anything for us. It doesn't allow us to make the progress in the program that we want to do. It doesn't allow us to make, we get trapped in guilt and shame. And somebody wisely had said to me that, his, that guilt and shame want absolution. And you can't get it because it, you did what you did. You can't change it. There is, absolution implies wiping the slate clean. The slate is never going to be wiped clean. I, if I have guilt and shame, I can't do anything with guilt and shame. But with regret, regret wants learning. Guilt and shame want absolution. Regret wants learning. I can learn from what I regret having done. I can learn, I don't want to do that ever again because I regret it so much. But there's a difference emotionally between feeling regret and feeling guilt and shame. Guilt and shame locks me up. I've got another little dirty secret in my guilt and shame that's, you know, that's inside me and I can't do anything with it. That's what, to me, I may be completely off base to other people in the program. That's just what works for me. Thank you. Everybody, I'm going to have to stop pretty close to the half hour. I'm sorry, but I have another appointment. So I'm, if there's one last person would like to ask me something, I'm happy to be. Somebody want to jump in real quick? I'm Patrick. I'm a compulsive eater. And I just want, someone said to me uh, this, this line um, not too long ago, and I really love it. It's God is energy. And that energy is willingness. And I just, mm. I re- that really resonates with me. And I wanted to thank you so much for sharing and talking about willingness. Thank you very much. That's great. I love that, Patrick. Wow. God is energy and the energy is willingness. Oh, boy. <laughs> thank you. That's a real treasure. Hopefully Nancy was writing that one down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Jonathan, thank you very, very, very much for your, for your share. And it looks like they're calling you for your next meeting or whatever. <laughs> I'm expecting a phone call that I'm going to have to deal with. But thank you all so very much. Thank okay. you all. I really, this has been wonderful. So great to hear from people all around the world at the same time. Such a great, you know, reminder of, of how, how extraordinary this fellowship is. And as some people say when meet, I've heard said at a meeting that tends to get larger at certain times of year, oh, sexaholism is a growth industry. Oh, anyway, yeah. thank you. Thank you okay. for, uh, for this opportunity. Thank you from Israel. Thank you, Jonathan. <clears throat> Bye-bye. We will go ahead. We still have about uh, maybe 10 minutes uh, to continue sharing. You can share about what you heard or, or anything else. Um, I don't have any hands up, so first come, first serve. Hi, this is Luke. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead, Luke. Hi. Um, yeah, it was a good meeting, good eye-openers, the reptile brain. I, I can identify with that, and I hate to say that 
in a way, the longer I am sober, uh, the more I see how ill I am, how how limited I am psychologically and mentally. Maybe it's my age also, maybe just damage, which has been done through sex addiction and, and alcohol and, and soft drugs and, and food abuse. But it's, it's yeah, I see it year after year more how, how ill I am. Yeah. So it's like a growing awareness of the depth of my disease physically, emotionally and spiritually. And I hope that doesn't sound too scary or somber because the good thing is I can stay sober and one day at a time with this program and um, I can find joy in mainly in service amidst of my brokenness or in the midst of my brokenness. Um, yeah, thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Luke. We'll open it up to, to people with fewer than 30 days of sobriety as well can share. This is uh, Francis. Can I come in there, Dan? Sure. Go ahead, Francis. The thing that struck me, the one that really made me think, was his whole idea of uh, my lizard brain, the reptile brain. You're the sort of un formed brain i've just been reading a book it's not a say about mindfulness and the compassionate mind and he's making the point that for most of us we're still stuck with that brain of protect and defend whereas we need to move on to a brain of which reaches out to comfort and compassion and uh, that's so much today that what he was talking about very much was that self-compassion that willingness to go that extra mile that willingness as he put it to go to what is beneath me. And I'm going to learn that in a big way. And uh, as somebody said about regret of the past, yeah, the past has happened. But as one of the A books tell us, the past, the past forms the blessings of today. And so I've got to keep remembering that and get rid of the lizard brain. When he was saying that, I was thinking of my trip to Florida, walking down in Disney World, seeing the alligator in front of us. Seconds. And my dad kept going. We all ran the opposite direction, but he carried on. It didn't bother him. I need to get rid of that lizard alligator brain and take on a brain of compassion. Thanks, sir. I shall leave it there. Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Francis. Still have time for a few more shares, two or three maybe. Well, I said something once. You were asking about expressions. I didn't write down the last one he said, so I don't know what it was. Um, but one, when I call, I, I compare myself to the outsides of others, and I think they're perfect, and they're not. I call it a white picket fence, two kids, and a dog. A white picket fence, two kids, and a dog. I am looking at this perfect house with this perfect, and it's not inside. It's a mess. But I'm comparing myself. Um for the women, they're there. The time when, uh, the month when you're just crazy, I call it, I feel like a cat in heat. And when I say that to a young woman, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. Um, oh, there's so many. 
There's so many. I think I it, I put on there a slip is not whoops. What happened? Like an old banana peel. It's not. It's like icing down the sidewalk, walking the temperature, going back, taking a run, and whoops, what happened? That, Short, um, I mean, I love all his expressions. I'll pass. Thanks, Nancy. Oh, uh, let's see. Amir, did you have your hand up again? Yes, I did. Yes, if I can... If there's anyone else who wants to share, uh, I already shared, but I'd like to say something else if possible. Go ahead, Amir. Thank you. So first, another thing that uh, I, I was very happy is to see someone uh, who who joined the 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 program. Let's say in after he was. Uh, old enough and 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 he managed to do uh, to, to to do a, a a distance for me it's it's inspiring and it gives a lot of hope the second thing i wanted to share with all that uh, god is uh, i'm now in a real uh, opportunity of spiritual growth i've been fired yesterday from my work again after one year of looking and um, and I feel I have an opportunity to to uh, deal differently with my situation and not to run away from the way I feel and I have tools and I have friends and I'm not alone and and, and I have strength that God is with me. Seconds. And uh, yeah, and and I and I feel that I'm, I, I feel pain of growth right now, uh, although it's difficult. And that's all. I just wanted to express this with all the people. Thank you. Thank you, Amir. Well, I'll jump in. I guess if no one else is, but I definitely. I didn't necessarily identify with all, you know, the way he acted out, but the most important things I did identify with, I mean, there were even parallels with the acting out part of it too. Don't get me wrong. But the most important part was the emotional, spiritual part of that, that I totally identified with. And that is this idea of this, this whole disease being an intimacy, intimacy disorder. And that we have, <coughs> I have no idea how to be in a real or how to be vulnerable. In fact, I've, my wife pointed this out, and she's exactly right. I am more I am more vulnerable with you guys in this meeting and telling you things about me than I am with my wife still. And that's got to change. <laughs> so hopefully, with this program and another program we're in, that uh, you know I can work toward toward that solution. But it's funny how I can be vulnerable and open and people pleasing with all kinds of strangers and other people and people in other programs, but not with the people who are closest to me. Defect I'm working on. Anyway, we have time for maybe one or two more. Then. This is Susie. This might be crosstalk, but I just will share that 
my husband depends on my uh, meetings and support systems to hear what's going on with me. He doesn't want he doesn't want to hear it, particularly in terms of the day to day ups and downs of my feelings in life and and things in the program. He he prefers that I bring it here or to my sponsor. Thanks. Thanks, Susie. I appreciate that. Thanks, Susie. Maybe one more. Hamid has his hand up, Dan. Arash oh. has his hand. Arash, go ahead. I think Hamid was first. Okay, go ahead, Hamid. It's Arash. Arash, sixaholic. Um, thank you very much for your service, guys. Um, I would like to say. I wish I could say again thanks to Jonathan because I think he shared my story. Uh, I could relate so much to him. I was really touched. Uh, it's rarely I get touched by some shares, rarely, but not so often. But today I was touched, so I will definitely listen to his um, speech again. I'm grateful that we have it recorded. Um, I also relate to this emotional uneducated emotional uh, thing and <clears throat> also being um, commitment. I have, I have also this functional commitment somewhere in my brain. Commitment for me, it's uh, something uh, non-defined yet or undefined, which I'm really working on. Um, I'm glad I could make this meeting and really happy to see you all my family. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.